In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Good morning and welcome back. This is Brad Furlan, your host on Vermont Viewpoint. I'm your Monday host. There's other hosts during the week, but we we have Monday here and we love Monday. And I like being part of your the beginning of your week. And I hope it's starting out well if you're in your car or in your living room or uh, like me this morning. I was out in the barn throwing hay to the sheep and I didn't bring them out to pasture this morning. It just seemed like too onerous. So they're going... We, they're like, Attica, Attica. They wanted to get out, but I didn't let them out. And so, uh, that's the way it went. Um, my next guest is returning, uh, a good friend of mine from Elmore, Vermont, and he's got a whole lot of hats like my, my, uh, first guest this morning. I want to welcome you to the show, Connell O'Brien. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back here. Yeah, it's great to be back. So, uh, I'll mention that one of your hats was you were the director of All of My Children and the Young and the Restless. So you were here in March. And if I said, uh, that Connell O'Brien and Brad Furlan were in the living room and they're heading to the kitchen in soap opera time, have we made it to the kitchen yet? Probably not. No, that probably would start on Monday and we might get there on Friday. Okay. And, and there'll be something dramatic that would tie you over to the next Monday. <laughs> All right. And probably something in the kitchen that yeah could be yes definitely you you have someone from your past that mysteriously is going to stand up and say something shocking it's possible it's yeah. possible <laughs> so um let's so people uh understand your your professional and personal development you were Acting was in your family, your parents? Yeah, my, my, both my parents were actors. They met actually at drama school at, uh, it was then called Carnegie Tech, uh, now called Carnegie Mellon, very good drama school in Pittsburgh. And, uh, my mother started having children, of which she had ten, one of ten. So that kind of killed her acting career, but my dad, Worked his entire career as an actor, raised that family of 10, worked all sorts of different media, uh, film, mostly stage, some soap opera. He was on Dark Shadows, which is uh, kind of, you say that to most soap fans and they go, oh, I love that show. And did all, all the soaps and he was instrumental in helping me get from there to here. It was very supportive of my career, very supportive of me being in theater and then in television. Um, I also trained with a man named B.H. Barry, and B.H. Barry is a master director and also specialized in fight choreography, sword fights and punch-up and throwing chairs at people. And I studied with him at school, um, and then I apprenticed with him after. And from that trade, from that idea, I went and choreographed a fight at All My Children a very long time ago, and it went great. I hit it off with the people there, notably with the senior director, and I started training with him to learn the craft of directing soaps because it's different than the work I was doing as a stage director. 
And you were essentially handed scripts, is that correct? Or did you yeah. collaborate on scripts? Or No, it's you're handed, as a director, you're handed a script and your job is to interpret it, uh, stage it out, and explain the staging quickly. You have one day to put the whole show together. The soaps are an amazing machine in the best sense of the word. I mean that. they, The people doing it put up an hour's programming uh, every five days a week. And it airs five days a week. It's a constant machine. You said to a writer, you, me, anyone, I want you to write this hour-long program at least once a week. My brain would fry. That's absolutely impossible. I can't come up with that much new idea. I can, but it takes me much longer. But the job of directing was to take what was given and interpret it as best you could, um, help the actors set it up then step back and conduct the shots. How many writers were involved in a week's worth of scripts for you? Many. There are different teams of writers. There's always a head writer, and then there's the people who do the long-term story, and then there's people who do the outlines of the story, and then there's people who break it down and do the dialogue of the story. And depending on the show, that's quite a lot of people, 20, 30 people, I think. Wow. And were specific writers earmarked to a person so that they understood the personality of that person and what they may dialogue? It's a nice idea, but no, because in any show you have a range of somewhere between 10 and 40 characters. And so on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that same writer can't write all those programs. So no, you get to learn all the voices. And yes, it's possible to say that some writers understand that voice better than another character's voice. It's true. And if somebody was difficult to write for, you just kill them off? It's <laughs> Not personally, but <laughs> it's possible. I've heard that story somewhere. <laughs> but notably, therefore, the people who last a long time doing what they're doing is just the opposite. They're good to work with. They know their stuff. The audience likes them. And they have heart. And they have reason to do it. People like Susan Lucci on All My Children, Beth Maitland on Young and the Restless, who's a very good friend and has been very supportive of my writing, which is the new aspect of where I'm going and what I'm doing now is I'm writing. And I'm not writing soap. I'm writing murder mystery. And uh, it's a whole different genre. And um, much to my delight, Beth is a major murder mystery fan and a major fan of Agatha Christie, which I am too. And she's been just delightful and helpful and uh, putting out the word for my books. I listened to that interview and uh, the camaraderie between you is evident and and also the, you know, you, you both cherish the, the, the writing and the murder mystery uh, format. Uh, so as a director of, of soaps with all these different people, are you you must be like the ambassador of goodwill uh, in some respects. <laughs> One tries. Do you, do you have an authority? Is it an authority position? So you sort of get to say, okay, this is how it's going to be? Or how do, you, how do you maneuver that? Once you become established or known inside of a studio, you are trusted because in one day someone has to actually steer the boat and make it, you know, come to the dock safely and everyone can get off. It is, um, therefore, a job of responsibility, and it's good if a person doing that job, and there's many directors, there's, it's a full field. If they're 
understanding that it's a people job. It, it matters how you communicate with other people. It matters if you can step back and let people have the freedom to be themselves, to bring to it the thing they're supposed to bring to it, and you know enough when to get out of the way, which is what I think I'm proudest of of my time doing that job was to know when to step back. You have the best of the best people, best cameras, best audio, best actors, God knows, and wardrobe and lighting. Your job is to step back and let them do the job. You set up what you did, and then you step back. And so it's authority, yes, but it's more knowing how to be part of the team, part of the company. And do you develop a, a social relationship as well as a professional relationship, or is sure. that no? It can happen. Yeah, Beth Maitland's become a very good friend. Yeah, obviously, there's people I've been working with and know for oh thirty, thirty-five years. That uh, Peter Bergman, who's a main star on Young and the Restless, started out on All My Children. When I go in to do my first thing at All My Children, Peter's the leading man of that show. <laughs> And, you know, time changes, you get hired, you get drafted, people that, and you went to California and went to YNR. And Peter's a good friend. You just, these are the people, you know, there's, it's, it's a very small, uh, enterprise soap in, in a lot of ways, even though people think of it as, as a widespread network. Yeah. Idea. We're talking this morning with Connell O'Brien. He is, he, uh, in one of his hats was, uh, directing, uh, All of My Children and The Young and the Restless. Uh, if you want to join the call, if you've got some, uh, favorite soap things you want to talk about, we're at 802-244-1777. Connell, you started in New York. Is that where you first directed? Yes. And then you went out to California. More recently, but yes, that's true. I was and, in New York for the, most of my career. Most of your career. And was it, um, was California just, it was a different soap and that's where it was being filmed or? Yeah, um, well, let's see, put briefly, my dad was failing and did die, in fact, in the year 2010. And that's also the year that all my children left New York and temporarily moved to California where it finished. I didn't go with the show at that time because I wanted to be, you know, near my dad. And he died that year. Towards the end of that year, I got a call from the producer, the then producer of YNR asking me to come out. And I thought, all right, it's a new door is open. Let's let's try that. Uh, for I did that for about six years, and that was the perfect time for that. And that's how I got there. Wow! And I'm sorry for your loss and your losses. Um, that makes it hard to do our daily uh, world when we've got emotional daily world as well. Mm. We're talking with Connell O'Brien, who uh, we we've been talking about. Your soap opera career, um, and you know how life changes, right? You went from New York. You had uh, family uh, uh, deaths that that impact us all, and uh, you you continued to California. Did that for a bit, and getting back to the family thing, you you became uh, you know. Like the apple falling from the tree, your father an actor sure. and did a lot of things. Ten kids, were you unique to the family in, in the path you followed? or? Well, let's see. If you ask my mother that, she would say all my children are unique. And in many ways, that's true. Um, I'm third oldest. It's almost like two generations in our family. The three oldest and then there was others. And the youngest, the span is, I don't know, um, 
20 years of life being produced and uh, nurtured. So I am the only one in my family that went into entertainment, that went into theater first and then into television, etc. And the others have done other things. My older brother Vince, been poet, uh, writer, uh, publisher, real estate broker. By the way, he's a wonderful real estate broker in the Delaware Water Gap area. Uh, my younger brother Liam is a teacher, got his master's in art history out of Rutgers and teaches in Massachusetts. It's all these different callings, which is wonderful. And our parents produced that. They gave us the opportunity to do what we thought was important and to follow an idea and follow a dream and gave us support. It's it's that's unique. That was incredible. I appreciate it to this day. So 10 children is a little bit unique nowadays. We don't, we don't. <laughs> was a little end here. Yeah. Um, when, what comes to mind for me, first of all, you, you sort of become the son and the father in, in, in the dynamic of the family at some point. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, guiding the little siblings well. <laughs> One tries to, and, you know, you don't have the experience perhaps of an adult who knows things and has been through it for longer and better. But, yeah, you do your best. And I'd like to think... One, one day it occurred to me, I was directing at all my children. It was a story about family strife and people going on and uh, generational stories between grandparents and parents and their adult uh, and adolescent kids. And I thought, not only is this show really well named, but I'm starting to understand my place in a show called <laughs> All My Children. Because of that thing you mentioned, it felt generationally interesting, the care and trying to help others from that family. Yeah, no, you really brought a real world, like talking with Scott back. He, he, he has all this background and now he teaches and it all applies. And you had all that. By the way, that was, it's a great interview. What an interesting guy that I was, we were listening, of course, and it was just great. Yeah. Scott Beck, nicely done. Well, thank you. Yeah. He's, he is a great guy and a, and a great guest, as are you. Uh, so I think about, uh, my f- family members and extended family will laugh because, my, it seems like in early part of my life, uh, f- food on the table was sparse at times. So when I, like, if I cook a Thanksgiving dinner for guests, it's the largest turkey. It's every vegetable you could think of. It's, it's, it's massive. It's more food. I could f- feed the whole Mayflower, you know, <laughs> in, in one setting. And now that you've announced that, we're all showing up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got leftovers. We're in. So 10 of you at the, probably 10 of you at the at dinner table. Do, do, do you have any of those? Was there plenty provided for you? Or? It changed from time to time. My dad was a working actor. There was one point in the mid-60s who was in a Broadway show. He was doing Promises, Promises. He was on one of the soaps. It was either Dark Shadows or a, sh- a show called The Edge of Night. Great titles, The Edge of Night. And um, he also had a television commercial on, which was the Shell Answer Man. He got three major gigs going at one time, and everything, we had food, it was great. And then two years later, all that crashed out, and it got a little thin again, and it was the actor's life. We had the cycle. We always had stuff. We always had clothes. We always went to school. It wasn't that yeah. hardship, but it must have been a strain on him when you have to pay your mortgage, and you know, on my mother, when you have to take care of all these people and get them to wherever. Um, it, it, was, it was different. So we had Thinner times as well. So yeah, and were there a lot of hand-me-downs? Did the teacher see three sets of clothing going through three kids? So I'm at um, a high school dance. I'm 
a junior, I think, and I'm kind of awkward and embarrassed. And I show up and I'm dressed in my best stuff. And this girl walks up to me and she says, hi, I'm Pamela. I said, oh, really nice to meet you. I'm smiling. This is great. She said, yeah, I used to date your brother. And I said, oh, I'm a little less happy about that. I said, how'd you know that? She said, you're wearing his pants. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going home now. <laughs> Life just doesn't always play fair. Well, good. Especially like- when we're young and we're or as I talk to my daughter all this a lot because she's just entering high school. And I say, you, you've got to understand that, that the boys just don't know what's going on right now. That's so true. That's so true. Yeah. It's kind of a lost world. Uh, so let's uh, skip a beat over to uh, we met in uh, a little store in Elmore, Miller's. Yeah, and that's part of the Vermont community. You know, uh, the store owner knew me, the store owner knew you, the store owner says, I want you to meet me, and the rest is history. <laughs> it's great that, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so you left uh, the big city, we would say, and <laughs> you moved to the little town. Uh, hmm, I suppose we, we needed a, a change. First of all, my career was shifting by determination. I've been writing since I was in my teens. I'd written some screenplays. I'd produced a couple of short films. I'd done some stuff for theater. But the television work is all involving. It's all you do is the television work, except I'd steal away some time and write stuff. And I realized I had hit a career shift and wanted to write full time. You can most definitely do that in the city, but with it, I just wanted a quieter place. I wanted someplace more contemplative, and thank God Gwen agreed, and and we decided to take a plunge. We had looked about in different places, northern California, up in Canada, and we couldn't quite find the place that resonated. And we had left California's back in New York, and we just decided to go explore Vermont. It was January. It was freezing. We rented a car and started tooling around. We wanted to see if we could deal with the cold. We're people from the city, you know. And we could. And it was something real and refreshing and healing and Vermont. And it's it can't you, you can't really wave a flag about it. It's, it's not that. It's very quiet. <clears throat> but it's something that we needed. So we moved. We rented out a house. We had the greatest landlord in the world down in the Moscow area of Stowe. We stayed there for three years. And then we were looking, of course, for a place for ourselves, and we found it up in Elmore. And I've written two books. (laughs) The third one is in the oven, and that's Vermont. It gave me what I needed. Gwen's teaching up here. Everything is, is working for us, and we're very grateful. It's been the right place. It's almost cliche, right? Uh. Well, I, you know, there's a lot of writers here. You're a writer. I'm a writer. And you have writers on, and God bless you for that, on your program. Vermont is filled with creative people, painters, writers, poets of you know, the, the works, and photographers, God knows, because it is nurturing for that. And yes, you can say, well, I'm a photographer. It's a beautiful place. It's hard to take a bad shot here. But it's also just the people and the land it's it is, I suppose, a little cliche, but it's it's been wonderful to be here. 
I am a member of uh, Vermont League of Writers, which is really a, a great organization and has a plethora of writers and, and you know, uh, editors and all this. Uh, and one of the uh, editor uh, people at the last gathering said that you write your first book your whole life. Did that – is that have some accuracy for you? Definitely. My older brother, Vince – he, he read the first book, uh, Birth of the Angel, and he, he said, so how much of this is about us and you? And I just started laughing. I said, all of it. Is it anything about us, literally? No, of course not. But everything that you go through, every person that you meet, people from your family, things that you remember, they echo in when you don't expect them to. You're writing something, and all of a sudden it just comes, and you think about it like a month later. Where did that come from? Where did I hear that from? And it's everything. It's exactly what you're saying. Your life matters, and it matters if you can express it. It really matters what you get, what you reach back for. So you had this full book in you, and then you you started actually putting it to print in Elmore? Uh, no, actually, we were still in the Stowe area okay. at, at that point. Yeah. And that one was just at the beginning of COVID. Right. We finished it. It was um, the very first months of COVID were just starting, uh, and I had to pull it. We pulled it from publication. I brought it back out to rewrite it completely because the main character, the investigator named Artemis Bookbinder, is a bona fide germaphobe. Book's supposed to be taking place right now. So I thought people are going to read this. There is this international pandemic and the germaphobe doesn't seem to notice it. No one's wearing a mask. It was, it was impossible. So I rewrote it and it became, I think, much, much richer with the complication of germaphobe in the world of COVID. This is his journey then. It, it takes a tremendous act of courage for him to open the doors and step out because of the things he needs to do. And I think a lot of people, I've heard back, a lot of people resonates with that because resonated with that because it was a very difficult time. It's a metaphor too, right? It's, yes. Um, mm-hmm. we, we all have trouble stepping out on a lot of things in life. Uh, Amen. So Birth of the Angel, I have a, I'm looking at this copy and it's a, um, it's one, of two and now and then three, but uh, birth of the angels. We only have about a minute before the break, but uh, the Gardner Museum robbery, real life. Right, that's uh, where it starts. March 1990, a real life robbery in the Gardner Museum in Boston. Thirteen treasures have never been found. That's real. That's not fiction, and is a disaster for the world. But my story, the fictional story, starts with. What if one of those pieces was found, and what if found next to it was a dead body? And that's where the story begins, and that's the quest and the journey. All right. The bookstore phones are ringing off the hook right now and the online purchases because just that, if you, if you don't want to read the book after hearing that, I don't know. Maybe you don't, whatever. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, one of, uh, Connell's hats is he directed soap operas for a long time. Uh, the young and the restless and all of my children. Give us a call at 802-244-1777. I remember when I was very young coming to Waterbury, Vermont, my grandmother and my grandparents, they lived here on the state hospital grounds. At 3 o'clock, 
boom, my grandmother was at the TV, and it was the quiet hour. That's right. Uh, you wanted to hear that dialogue, yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't even – uh, was it Guiding Light at 3, or do you remember? I, I can't actually accurately answer that, but yeah. that seems really possible. Yeah, I can't either. I just know that uh, it was a big part of her life and a big part of a lot of people's lives. Uh-huh. So we were talking about Birth of the Angel, the Gardner Museum robbery. One thing that um, intrigues me about this, did you have any uh, sort of sidebar hope that this book might open up the the case in the real world and and that's a very interesting question well uh, it's an interesting idea because what if you stirred up the hornet's nest and got yourself in trouble because your supposition of where the pieces are was too close to reality (laughs) but no it's it's a fiction uh, fictional idea the book is of my own invention and yes i've researched this like crazy to see where investigations did go, current investigations are going. They really have turned everything upside down looking for these paintings, never really found a clue of anything. So I do have a theory or two. First of all, the the first piece is recovered on page one of Birth of the Angel. So it starts right there, and that person who's the dead body on the floor is the clue, and following that led me to a whole journey of what I thought might have happened. It actually is being even more evolved in the book I'm writing now because the series of books has to do with the recovery of those art treasures. The murder mystery aspect is one per book. You get a murder mystery happens and is solved inside of one book, but the characters continue because they continue on this quest to find the Gardner Museum stuff. And yes, they may recover some along the way besides just the first one, and that's the story. What do they find? When do they find it? And where does it lead? It's really an art, and I, 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 I'm amazed uh, what what I just heard you say is – the book is is self-contained, right? Yes. Um, and then you wrote another self-contained book. Yes, and, and the first two linked together a little tighter than even the rest of them will, except for the characters, because the real solving of the first murder mystery happens at the end of the second book. Yeah. But you get enough finishing at the end of the first book to satisfy. It strikes me that your training in, in your whole soap opera world is that you 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 take a theme and characters that are similar, but they evolve and over. Like you said, your your friend has been in there for thirty years. Yeah, and there's a lot of people you can say have done the long run in soaps because the audience like them and because they still are alive inside of what they're doing and they like it and respect it. And so, soaps are quite unique in the entertainment industry. People can last a very long time there if they're good, and then that's the measure of it. In terms of structure. Yeah, I agree with you. Not only soaps, but theater, which is where I started, and long-form writing, which is what I started doing in my 20s, and reading. Uh, things like Tolkien's stories, which I loved, Agatha Christie, who has a myriad of characters and carries them through. Uh, Hercule Poirot, for instance, or Miss Marple, run through many, many books, and following the thread of why they're unique, that appealed to me. That was the thing that actually hooked me. But yeah, everything feeds in, for sure. <laughs> Working a soap genre, you understand things about storytelling. And has the writing become a find-the-soul uh, 
thing for you? Well, you're back to my brother Vince's question of, is this about us? Is this about you? Yeah, I think it's not overt. It's the writing itself is that that's the thing I need to do. When I write, I'm happy. I just like it. When I get tied up, now that we lived in Vermont, you step outside and you, you look around. It's very beautiful here. You breathe the air, you feel the soil, and you go back in. You have more stuff to do. That, that feeds my soul. That's what I'm supposed to do. And give us a little impression of the mechanics. Birth of the Angels, it was something that, you know, was inside of you. But there's a difference between concept and production. Right. What, what, what you, were your habits You on know that? this because you've been writing and in your process of writing that this one is, is – it was a long time – Doing this, I started writing this in a reaction to a book I had read that I didn't like a long time ago, 20 years ago maybe. And I wrote the characters and I wrote a version. And I think I told you this last time we were here. I showed it to my parents and my dad, who never said anything unkind about work, that I showed him something, went, oh, well, yeah, very good. And he, he didn't it, – it didn't ring. It didn't, didn't do it. And I thought, that's interesting. I was too formal. I was just telling the story. There was no me in it. So I took it away and then took a long time because I was doing the other job, a long time to rewrite it. And the more I worked on it, the more I read it out loud and heard the pieces of it, the more I realized I could put more of me in it, a character's reaction to something, someone, the way they speak, the the things they hear and notice, the worlds that they're involved with. In Birth of the Angel, there are different worlds, the investigator worlds, the criminals, of course, uh, and a TV news group that's always part of the story. That was tons of fun for me to write. Guess why? Yeah. <laughs> because I have this television background, and everything is stirred up in there. That's that's the point. You so, get to use it. So many lenses you get to put into one product. With luck, yeah. That. Yeah. Uh, so, Birth of the Angels, uh, and then on to uh, Death of Television. Book two. Uh, what do you want to tell us about that? Well, what don't I? Originally, I was <laughs> I was going to do this as a three-book series, but to actually get to where the person is revealed as the, the, the culprits, as it were, I thought that was too long, so I got it into two books. And from feedback on lots of people and reviews and such, this was a good idea. People really like this combination books to get them both together. And it follows the story, continues the story. It's about 16 months later in the arc, so COVID is no longer the new element. It's been going on for a time, and people are looking forward to when it finishes. And that became the element of this story. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. Two brilliant books. Uh, we're talking with Connell O'Brien. He's got uh, Birth of the Angel, Death of Television. Uh, you can get these books in local bookstores in Vermont. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, you can also go online to Connell O'Brien. Your website is www.connell, which is spelled C-O-N-A-L, O'Brien, O-B-R-I-E-N, connellobrien.com. Uh, these are these are books worth reading. Uh, so, you know, eventually in in time, I'll be going. So, Connell, this is your 18th book. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> I hope it, it's going well. <laughs> and I'll say 
What? I can't hear you. <laughs> that's right. We, we're going to get the large print edition. That's, that's right. By that, the, that's why, by the way, we're selling the most books on Amazon Kindle, which I only plug because that's what's great about it. You can make the print as big as you like, which is brilliant. If my mom was still around, she would have loved that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's get to the third book. And I know that you, you've got, you brought some writing and I'm going to, I'm encouraging you and asking you to, to read us read something for us to Thank give a little flavor of the book. I will do. Before I do, I have to say I know that you hike up Elmore Mountain, notably when there's a full moon from time to time or perhaps every month or whenever the weather is most suitable. Why did you start doing that? Well, I've done it for a few years, and it is every full moon uh, year-round. And uh, Elmore Mountain, as you know, at the top has a fire tower. And I, maybe it's I want to be closer to the moon, but really it's <laughs> it's the cathartic journey of going up a mountain. I'm up at night. I'm often alone. I, my dogs come with me. If you hit it right, the, the sun rising or setting over Stowe area is absolutely beautiful from the top of the fire tower. And then the moon rise over Lake Elmore. Um, and as you would guess, sometimes I don't see anything because in the middle of the winter and it's snowing hard or whatever, it doesn't happen. But it's my cathartic gig and I, I've stuck with it. Well, we've talked about this before and I asked you last time I think we were here, if you would mind if I adapted a little bit of that experience for one of my characters who has a unique relationship with the moon. And you graciously said yes. And so I wrote this. This is the prelude for book three. This is going to be out in 2024. It's definitely not out yet. And this is how it goes. It's about a character called Lucille. You've read about her in books one and two. And faithful readers, thank you. You know who this is. Prelude. The crunchy leaves beneath her boots. The loose play of the flashlight beam scanning the rocky path ahead, her breath coming out as vapor. Tomorrow was supposed to be hot, maybe even a record-breaker for Vermont on the first day of October. But tonight, the air was cold and crisp. Despite that, she unzipped her jacket as she navigated the steep path. She knew the way, even in the darkness. The hike up Elmore Mountain had become a kind of ritual for her, always at night and only when there was a full moon. The trees opened overhead, and Lucille stepped out onto a small plateau known as the Lookout. From here, she could see the expanse of Elmore Lake far below, glittering magically. She smiled and looked up. The moon seemed unusually large in the star-filled sky. Hello, old friend, she said softly. Sometimes she continued her hike to the summit, where an old but well-maintained fire tower stood, the view from the top of the nearly four-story structure, especially on a bright night like this, stretched for miles in all directions, the lake to the east, the Worcester Range to the south, Mount Mansfield to the west, and Canada far off to the north. But she had started out later than usual, and the first light of day was just starting to reach across the sky from the east. It didn't matter. She was just happy to be here, right now. There was a time... Not so long ago, when she lived in a city, there she had lost herself in the constant, noisy, urgent challenge of so many people all together, all at once, so she'd left. Lucille sat down on a large rock, pulled out a water bottle and took a drink. A breeze came up the mountain from the east and rustled through the orange-red leaves all around her. 
She looked up at the branches overhead and could imagine, as she often did, large faces of the watchers of the forest. And she felt grateful that she was somehow allowed to be here. And she felt a connection to myths and the old stories she had heard about elves and the protectors of dreams. She took a long breath to remember. Then she zipped up her jacket, got up, and started back down the path. This is uh, the prelude to book three, uh, Connell O'Brien. I can live and breathe every moment, every word that you just wrote. You got it. You got it so straight. Um, Thanks, Brad. And it's uh, it's it's a beautiful. Uh, and I I'm uh, gathering it gets a little dicier after that. <laughs> well, one has requirements in a murder mystery. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I noticed uh, th- there is in the books you you have to give a little bit of an adult warning too. I do, and thank you for saying that. These books are for adult. My my hero in these in this world is Agatha Christie, and her books are cozy. They're meant to be. They feel that way. Uh, my books are for adults insofar as they have adult language in them, and they also have an occasional sexual situation. So thanks for that. It's important to say so people are not surprised. <laughs> they go, wait a second. Yeah, yeah. No, we've had... Uh, and um, one thing you had mentioned about having to really rewrite um, the birth of angels in the, in the beginning, I'm reminded of author Brett Stanchu, who's up in, uh, in Harvard Hardwick, she did. She went through the same metamorphosis you had. She turned a manuscript over to a publisher, and they essentially said, "This is a great book, but you got to put more of you in it." Oh. And she was painstaking about how hard that was to bring her and her her life into that. Was that? I think once I got used to the idea, I, I liked it. Yeah, I like being truthful about it, and it wakes up all the characters. Then a character's not speaking in a stilted way. You know this because you read it out loud, and God bless Gwen. She hears all my stuff multiple times. You read it out loud, and then you learn, and the more yourself you put into it, the better that read is, the better it feels. So I think there's only one choice. You have to be honest. You have to actually tell the story from who you are, where you are, and what your journey is. So... Um, I asked you this on our last break. We, You post um, from time to time on Facebook, and you post in September about your walk up Elmore Mountain on a kind of a messy night with weather and such. Uh, and I wondered if you wouldn't mind reading that. I know your computer's there, and you could kind of go for it and fire it. But this, I've, I think this is a tremendous piece of writing, and I'm... I'm putting you on the spot this way to encourage you to publish and and do your stuff. Well, I thank you for that, and uh, we'll see if our listeners will indulge me <laughs> for a short short reading here. Uh, the greater point is, you know, if you're out there and you're a Vermonter, or you're you, you anybody who's out there is a Vermonter or or our neighboring states. Uh, and you have writing in your soul, it can be done. Uh, Connell came to Vermont. Uh, he had writing in his soul. He had a, this brilliant career in television, but made the shift, found the time to sit down and do a little writing. Uh, so as we talked about, um, I hike Elmore Mountain every full moon, and the moon isn't always there to see, and, and this is what happened uh, for the, the blue moon of August. There may be some debate 
if it was a marvelous night for a moon dance on Elmore Mountain. Large clouds loomed above like ancient gods overlooking my journey. The ranger station and parking lot at the trailhead were both empty. The hike began with a drizzle, and I quickly needed my headlamp. The rain varied in intensity, but the heavy mist and the intense darkness lent itself to little visibility. When I can't see well on a trail, I rely on the trees, not above, but the root systems that boldly protrude from the ground after decades of hiking wear. And I think, is it not our roots that often guide our path? My dogs are great companions at adventure, each with lighted collars looking like space aliens crisscrossing a galaxy. A couple times they stopped in their tracks and studied the woods. I called them into me for whatever was out there needed to stay out there. We try to hike in harmony. Hiking without visibility renders contemplation. Where am I on the trail? Where am I in life? I examine a certain loneliness and how it fiercely battles with independence. Do we ever find balance? And about the moon dance, a hike in total downpour, roots from the trees serving as my guide beneath my feet, the glory of the soaking earth, stripping half naked to dry my body at the summit of a mountain, to revel in the splendor of nature's bounty, Marvelous comes in many ways. Well, at least once in a blue moon. Brad, that's great. That's just great. And I, I love that you talked about the roots as the place we come from and what they teach us. This, thank you for reading that. I think that's marvelous. Well, thank you for the prompt. And thank you, uh, radio listeners, for indulging uh, two, two writers who, <laughs> you know, kind of like, like the gig. That's it. Uh, we've been talking uh, for the last hour with Connell O'Brien. He's got three books, uh, two you can uh, purchase right now today, uh, Birth of the Angel, Death of Television is the second one. You heard the prelude to the third one, and I'm I'm so excited about uh, the 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 moon hike part of the novel, and also just the the continuation of of seeking out answers and uh, and life's mysteries. And I know we're closing in up at the end of the hour, but I just want to thank Bridgeside Books here in Waterbury, Katya and, and her people for putting our book on the shelves, and and also Emma at uh, Bear Pond Books in Montpelier and God bless those guys had to rebuild that entire bookshop and they did they're back in business everybody should go to those bookshops please look for my book but go there anyway and go buy books yeah um, the local bookstore is a place to be uh, for all sorts of things even yeah so uh, Connell O'Brien my guest uh, Elmore writer uh, two books under his belt and uh, one more coming out soon and many more after that, we hope. Uh, I want to thank you for um, being my guest this morning. Thank you, Brad, and thank you for reading. I really love that. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for that offer. Uh, Coming up uh, later, uh, Bill Sayre with Common Sense Radio and my good friend Charlie Papello. Charlie is going to take us around, and uh, I'll be back next week. Uh, Thank you, listeners. We can't do radio without you. Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint. Thank <laughs> you.